أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وضرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد So we continue uh, with the باب الضحايا والذبائح والعقيقة والصيد والختان uh, all, all the مسائل or most of the مسائل that were relevant to the Udhiyah we got through but for the sake of completion, inshallah, we'll finish this bab. The intention being that, uh, inshallah, when we're done with this, uh, I don't know, before leaving to Turkey or after, inshallah, we will start a reading of Akhbari, inshallah, um, so that that can be recorded in a dhakhira for anybody who wants to get the basics of their tahara and salat in the Maliki Madhab uh, without, uh, without having to guess. As I was discussing with one of the brothers over here, uh, one of the irritating noises that scratches the chalkboard of my soul is this idea that the Maliki Madhab is praying with your hands down or that you can keep a dog or whatever like stupid like things people have uh, ideas that they have and so they uh, it, it's like a person who you know you show them a you know a hundred thousand dollar car Ferrari or Lamborghini or whatever Tesla or whatever and uh, the only thing they remember about it is oh that car was red and it's like yes, you can get like a you can get a a red bike for that matter. Uh, that that's not really what makes it what it is. It's not an appreciation of the design of the form, of the seamlessness of the perfection that goes into it. Uh, and so, uh, inshallah, hopefully with the uh, recording uh, of a dars of akhvari, uh, I'll have something that I can point to people uh, that uh, they can listen to on their own and have a solid foundation and a solid basis with which to work and then afterward we can do uh, Al-Murshid Al-Mu'een Ibn Ashir and uh, it will be something functional for people so that the durus uh, can transition from a more general interesting discussion about fiqh to uh, a, a grounding in practice of the fiqh itself. Uh, my intention always with teaching was never that I'm you know, a quote-unquote sheikh of the Maliki school, because I'm definitely not. Uh, people who have read Akhdari from me uh, have gone on to achieve a far better understanding of the madhab than I do uh, in a relatively short amount of time. But my purpose has been always to present some sort of unified and integrated um, conception of Islam through these mutun and these nusus, not necessarily for a specialist, but more for a practitioner to see how the aqidah, the tasawwuf, the fiqh, all of them, how they connect with one another and become an organic part of life. If a person can do that, then they become a Muslim and then they're eligible to have their heart and their mind opened by the Lord in order to understand the deen. Not in the way a university professor understands it, but in the way people like Ghazali, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, like Qarafi, like Fakhruddin Razi, like those people whose intellects were truly enlightened. Uh, many names we'll never know, or if I throw them out, people won't know who they are. But if you read their books, you get the feeling that these people are not normal. Uh, that uh, once you practice your Islam, your mind is now eligible for being shown what real ilm is, which I don't uh, purport or claim to be 
uh, teaching anybody. Uh, but I do know those who do teach it to people and you cannot get it without mastering these types of things Like if you think it's not worth your time knowing what you know What's halal to eat and what's not or how to make wudu properly or not or whatever it, it, These are trite masail that belong in a maktab and that you you know You want to talk about interesting and quote-unquote relevant things to the ummah uh, I'm sorry uh, it, This is not really going to go anywhere. It's never how it ever went anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere in the future um, but uh, inshallah that you know my hope is that we can present those things so that we can actually maybe talk about something ilmi uh, uh, one day uh, so uh, you know that's that that's that's the hope and that's the plan make dua inshallah that Allah ta'ala give tawfiq and if even one person can read the akhbari from me properly if somebody can read ibn ashir and the risala from me in that way uh, in a way that not only is the fiqh uh, understood by them but it's something that a person sees no other option except for to practice because to not practice it would be just to shoot yourself in your foot with regards to your deen and your dunya and your mind and your heart and your spirit it would be uh, it would make as much sense as uh, you know sticking your hand in a hole and getting bit by a snake or uh, you know taking your money and uh, you know just throwing it out the car window or whatever if someone can get to that point I have no doubt that that person if they want wish to seek knowledge Zahiran and Batinan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give them something that would uh, that would impress others and maybe even be a fitna for the person themselves that they didn't know that this type of knowledge was uh, knowable by people in this time, in this age. Even though it's always the same Allah ta'ala, He doesn't change with time and He doesn't change with space and place and all of these things. Um, and so Allah ta'ala give tawfiq. So we continue. Uh, the the Bab al-Bahaya uh, Ibn Abi Zayd rahimahullah ta'ala uh, he says wala ba'sa bi ta'ami ahli al-kitabi wa dhaba'i'ihim wa kuriha aklu I don't know why this is difficult for me to pronounce right now dhaba'i'ihim wa kuriha aklu shuhum al-yahudi minhum min ghayri tahrim uh, so, la bas means it's khilaf al-awla, it's suboptimal, but it's permissible to eat the, um, the meat of the people of the book, the slaughter of the people of the book. Uh, and uh, although he said it's, it's uh, makru to eat the fat from the animals slaughtered by the Jews. And uh, so we'll dissect that. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. That we'll dissect that uh, right now. And the first thing is what? is that anyone who tells you that the slaughter of the people of the book is haram, uh, you know, that's between them and Allah Ta'ala. That, that Allah Ta'ala said that it's uhillat lakum ta'amulladina utul kitaba. And so if they want to argue with Allah Ta'ala about that, that's up to them. Uh, this is a fiqhi hukum. This is not a hukum of aqidah. This is not an endorsement of their... Uh, brand of disbelief as being better than another brand of disbelief in terms of the aqaid, all of them are uh, are disbelief, and uh, but this is a legal difference. There is a legal difference between their slaughter and the slaughter of other than them, other than them, uh, and so whoever wants to say that that's that's like somehow like not a part of the deen, that person doesn't know what they're talking about, and I've seen various um, permutations of this sentiment. So, uh, you know, I, one of the more ridiculous and inexplicable permutations of this uh, 
um, sentiment is, oh, well, you know, the, the, the Christians nowadays are mushrikeen, whereas they weren't mushrikeen back in the day. And uh, that, that's a, an excellent explanation, except for once you read the Quran, you realize it doesn't fall apart. It falls apart. But other than that, it, you know, other than like reading the Quran and basic facts about history or whatever, um, you know, in some people's mind, it seems like a good explanation, but it's not. Uh, in fact, they were always mushrikeen. Uh, uh, since the time of the Prophet وسلم, the ta'ifa amongst the, the Christians that worshipped Allah alone and without any partner were essentially genocided out centuries before the Prophet وسلم, and any uh, vestiges or pockets of them that existed once the Muslims took over a place they seemed to have uh, basically come to Islam and uh, uh, and that's it and that's it. you know there's no appreciable numbers of them that that are left so you know what a goth is right you don't know what a goth you know what a goth is right like in high school goths you know like they, yeah you know like they uh, dress up in black and this and that so being a goth is like some sort of weird you know type of thing maybe some of you guys are goths uh, as well yourselves uh, when you're in high school or whatever you know because it's a nice way of having somewhere to fit in when you don't fit in or whatever it's just seattle i think it feels like very amenable to it i definitely most definitely was not a goth uh at all uh, but uh you know that's what it is to people nowadays so Saab, what does being a goth have to do with the kitab uh, and uh, what it has to do with it is what as we speak english we speak a germanic language it's called english okay from the branches of the Germanic languages, right? Like what they speak in like Scandinavia, that's another branch, the Nordic branch, what they speak in Iceland, what they speak in Norway, Sweden, Denmark. That's a branch of Germanic languages. What we speak is another branch of Germanic languages connected to Germany, connected to like Frisian, connected to Flemish, uh, connected to Dutch, right? There's another branch of Germanic languages called Gothic. There's a large amount of writing in Gothic comparatively from the Middle Ages. However, nowadays, Gothic languages are all completely almost extinct. There used to be large numbers of Goths that were in Italy. There were a large number of Goths that uh, were in the Iberian Peninsula. The Goths essentially ruled. They displaced the, the you know they displaced the local people, Romanized local people, and they ruled over Spain. Now, why is it that after having such prominence, their culture completely disappears, their language completely disappears? Goths were all they all followed the Aryan creed. Or many of them followed the Aryan Creed. Not like Aryan as in like A-R-Y-A-N, like, like, like an ethnic designation. But Aryan as in Arius, who was, I think, like the Bishop of Alexandria or something like that at some point or another, uh, who was contemporaneous with many of the old church fathers and he maintained stridently that Christ was not the same as God. And that there's one God and Christ maybe has some sort of status higher than that of a human being, but that he wasn't God. 
and that he wasn't co-eternal with God, etc., etc. And there used to be a lot of Christians like that at some point or another, the Trinitarians, right? You have like this, the creed of the, you know, the creed of uh, the Council, the Nicene Creed, and then after that, the Chalcedonian Creed, which excludes the Monophysite Christianity of like the, um, the, the um, Egyptians, the Coptic Church, and the Eastern Nestorian churches and things like that, right? Um, they basically got rid of the Aryans through what? Through genocide. Their church is completely gone. So we can go on YouTube right now and get lectured by Jordan Peterson about why I should find a Shia pen pal. Right? Shias and Sunnis, we should find a pen pal and write to each other and get to know each other and understand each other. Right? Whereas any discussions of anything schismatic in the Christian church, to the point that they're able to, they basically killed, they killed off the competition. The only schisms that still survive are where no one party could get the upper hand over the other and kill everybody. However, the Copts considered the Eastern Orthodox Church all to be Kafirs and going to Jahannam, and the Catholics to be Kafirs and going to Jahannam, and the Protestants to be Kafirs and going to Jahannam, and the uh, uh, Orthodox and Catholics pronounced mutual anathema on one another in the same way. And, you know, it's basically, it never ends. Like, they basically, the only way that they can have any sort of ecumenical unity is by saying, you know what, let's just not talk about Akhida for a while. Now, coming back to the issue of why the Unitarian Creed doesn't exist anymore, um, Andalus was a bastion of it. And in the Reconquista itself, there is a, a couple of antagonisms that run in parallel. One antagonism is definitely that of the Christians against the Muslims. But it's not just that, okay? The... The Reconquista, they were like the Frange. They were a different, they were the Germanic speaking, the German branch of the Germanic people rather than the Gothic branch. The Gothic branch cast in lot with the Muslims. Why? Because they had a different religion from before. And so they, part of their thing is they wanted to kick the Muslims out. Part of their thing is they wanted to annihilate the, the Gothic uh, creed, which was also a agenda of the Catholic Church in Italy as well because there are a number of Goths in Italy as well, and they basically massacred them and got rid of them, destroyed them. Right? This, this idea is an idea that is very important to understand if you want to understand why Europe is the way it is. Why is Bosnia an island of Islam within like, basically like surrounded on all sides by Christians? It's because the Bosnian church didn't ever follow either the Catholic or the Protestant creed. It was a separate church that had a different ideology about the nature of Christ, and they essentially made taqiyya to survive. And when the Muslims came, they're like, "Yo, this is closer to anything that makes sense, and that 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 uh, has that you know has to do with our sensibility about uh, uh, Christ anyway." So they just become Muslims because it integrates with what they believe, and uh, uh, you know this is why Islam is such a big. You know, it's such a big enemy on in the crosshairs of the church for so long is not because it's different or that it teaches anything different, but it's because it's such an effective 
competitor to the same claim. Now, how is this relevant to what we're talking about? First of all, um, Trinitarian creed was riding high at the time of the Prophet Unitarian creed was like already shoved to the peripheries. Most of these people have been killed by genocide already at this point. The few of them that are left will end up coming into the fold of Islam. That's one thing to understand. The second thing to understand how this is relevant is this, is that Qadi Abu Bakr ibn, ibn al-Arabi, you know, by convention with Alif Lam, right? He's the civilian Qadi, Ishbilian Qadi that um, he wrote the Tafsir Ahkam al-Quran, uh, which was, you know, uh, the genre upon which Qurtubi then writes later on. Uh, Qadi Abu Bakr, his mazar is outside the gates of Fas, but he is, he is, he is, uh, he is from Seville, and he goes and studies in the Sharq, uh, in the East, uh, and he studied with Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, and he is an Ash'ari, and he is, you know, a great muhaddith as well. He comes with his own asanid of hadith and things like that, um, and a very interesting writer. Many of his opinions may, may not have been super popular at the time. Uh, but he did write about a lot of things and even the things that a person disagrees with. It's interesting to see what his point of view is about uh, about uh, about everything. And he is a great, uh, you know, he's a great uh, figure in that period of Maliki fiqh. His opinion with regards to with regards to the permissibility of eating the meat of the people of the book is opposed to what's mentioned in Khalil. What's mentioned in Khalil is that if they slaughter according to the conditions of valid slaughter in our sharia, then we can eat from it. Opposed to, his, uh, opposed to the opinion mentioned in Khalil is the opinion of Qadi Abu Bakr, is, which is if they slaughter according to their rules of slaughter, then it's permissible to eat for us. So, if for example, the benchmark of that is would a qisis or rahban eat from it? You know, so if you go to like, a, you know, some God-fearing uh, monk or priest who's like sincere, not just like some Cesare Borgia who's like whatever, like having a, like whatever, commits zina with his daughter or whatever pope type weirdo people, you know, like they have that as well in their tradition. Um, but uh, so, yes, let's make a big alliance, you know, with everybody. Right. OK, first excommunicate the. You know, excommunicate the, uh, you know, at least excommunicate the, what's the word for this again? I know it's some cuss words in Urdu for it, but what's the word for this again? Incest, right? Excommunicate your ancestral popes first, and then let's, we'll, then we'll talk about, like, how we can ally with one another, you know? Um, someone's like, oh, look, Mulana is not being very interfaith. Or, this is the haq is the haq. I'm not saying you have to cuss out your Catholic neighbors or, like, every Catholic. You see, but I'm just saying, if you want to, on an ideological level, if you want to talk about things, let's talk about them. You say, oh, you guys are a bunch of terrorists and you're violent and you're this and that. I'm so, okay, cool. You know, like, I get it. Some Muslims have done violent things over the years and whatever, you know. So, like, we can have a discussion about that if you want to. I'm not going to say get lost. Let's, say, let's talk about it, right? So, no, you, you also then, we have a right also to ask you about, like, why is it that you have you know, people who receive sainthoods that are, you know, basically have like 17, 18 children out of wedlock. Uh, and, the, you know, like how, how why is it that you still officially endorse genocide? The same church, still alive today. And you haven't repeated it. Just say, sorry, you know, we were wrong. Right? No, you haven't done that yet, right? If you want us to take you seriously as a partner for some sort of whatever uh, dialogue or collaboration, it's okay. We can ask that without being haters or whatever. So, 
a sincere, not one of these cynical type of people, but a sincere believer in like the Gospels and in, in Christ and whatever, if they would eat it and it would, it would be respectable for them to eat it, then it's, that's what the benchmark is, meaning things slaughtered according to their laws. So with Jews, it's a little bit easier because they actually have uh, something uh, that is their attempt at fiqh based on the laws of the Torah. With Christians, it's a little bit more murky because they don't really have a sharia that they, they even purport to follow. Um, but, uh, but you know, it is what it is. Um, so the benchmark at any rate that he mentions is that would one of their monks or priests be comfortable eating it? Uh, and if the answer is yes, then it would be valid. Even theoretically, he mentions this, he mentions this, this mas'ala, that even if theoretically, if uh, uh, snapping the neck of the chicken is how they slaughter. If a Muslim did it, said Bismillah, and wrung the neck or ripped the head of the chicken out, it would be haram, it would be But if one of them did it, and their priests felt okay eating it, and their monks felt okay eating it, then if they did it, it would be halal for us to eat. Again, these are two different opinions. One is the one mentioned in Khalil, which is the mashhur opinion, and this opinion is muqabil al-mashhur. It is a strong enough opinion that, that, that in the usu, according to the great, great scholars of the Maliki school, if a person gave fatwa on this opinion, it's not a weak opinion. It's an opinion based on solid proofs, and it seems to be the opinion that is uh, preferred by Wan Sharisi and his, Mi'yar uh, al-Mu'rib, uh, and he actually dedicates a great amount of explanation, uh, the entire tract from Qadi Abu Bakr there. And what did Qadi Abu Bakr say? Because this has to do with Aqidah as well. This is the int- intersection of Aqidah with Fiqh. Qadi Abu Bakr says, why is it that Allah Ta'ala made it permissible for a Muslim man to eat the meat of the people of the book and to marry the women of the people of the book? Is it because he's endorsing their kufr as being better than any other kufr? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Kufr is kufr, it's bad, it's horrible, it's bad. There's a discussion about the precept of al-kufru millatun wahida. Actually, Malik dissents with it. But again, it's a fiqhi dissension. I don't know that a person can say it's even aqidah dissension. If you're a kafir, you're a kafir. You know, someone says, oh, look, you know, these people, they have faith, they pray, they this and that, right? It's, you know, it's all a day late and a dollar short. All of it is the same breakdown that happens. You know, it's like the chandelier, you know, which link in the chain that holds a chandelier above your head is more important. Well, at some point or another, any of them break, you're going to get your head hurt. That's, that, that's the fact, right? So it's, you can discuss about it, but it's a very, like, ivory tower discussion. Practically, it's all just garbage, right? It's all going to end in, in severe head damage, head trauma. So Qadi Abu Bakr says... The reason for this is not some sort of endorsement or love of one particular type of kufr over the other. But it is because if a Muslim goes to a place where people worship wood and stone, for them to make the argument and produce the hujjah that your idol worship is nonsense, it's not going to go anywhere. That your idols cannot help you. The weird spirits you call on don't help you. The like weird sacred wolf that you know see in a vision when you, uh, you know, get high or whatever. Uh, it's not going to help you. It's not really you know what's going on. It's all just khayalat that you have swimming around in your head. The hujja is complete. You know it's true. They know it's true. If they don't accept it, it's just inad at that point. There's no real 
further explanation that's needed. Whereas if you bring the da'wah of the Rasul وسلم, to Nasrani or Yahudi, they say we already have the Torah, we already have the Injil, we already worship the same God, and we suspect that you know you bring nothing useful to us as an addition, and uh, uh, you know we're already doing it. Thank you very much. We don't need what you have. And so he says that there is a need for ikhtilat, that they have to mix with our people and we have to mix with their people so that they can see our prayers are not like their prayers, that our masajid are not like their kana'is, uh, uh, and that they have to see that our uh, uh, you know, men are not like their men, our women are not like their women, our children are not like their children, our du'as are not like their du'as. That you cannot do from far away, you have to mix. Because if you look at the genre of refutation, uh, Christian refutation of Islam, in the Eastern Church and Western Church, they're dramatically different. In the Eastern Church, they actually try to study Islam and refute it, and they do a relatively weak sauce job at it. What are their, what are their uh, you know, accusations, right? Their accusations against the Prophet ﷺ that he's a violent man. Who's the one who did Auschwitz and who's the one who, you know, depopulated the Iberian Peninsula of Muslims and who's the one who, you know, you guys killed each other like mercilessly, you know, like who's the one who did all of this stuff? Then you can talk to us about like who's violent, who's not. Right? The first, the first religious-based violence, intra-Islamic violence based on religion was what? Was the Mihna, right? As relatively later on. And who did it? It was the Mu'tazila who did it, not the Ahl-Sunnah. We have like solid several century like record of our of really no scholarly figure endorsing uh, intra-religious violence. We have a scholarly record of not forcing people to convert, and if someone does force someone to convert, it's completely it's purely political. The qadi will invalidate it. It doesn't it doesn't even stand legally in our courts if someone is forced converted. If they can prove it in front of the qadi that this was all under duress, then like yeah, you're not you're not Muslim. Uh, to our sharia because your conversion doesn't even matter it doesn't even count it's not real and uh, uh, in general that was the policy of the Muslims not to do it and this is why India is still filled with Hindus this is why you know there are still like huge fractions of population in the Arab world that are still Christian this is why there are Jewish communities that survived in uh, not you know in, in large parts of the Muslim world etc etc we didn't have pogroms like uh, you know um, like the Christians did and when we did have them because they did happen the most important thing is that they were not de- driven or sanctioned by the ulama but they were driven and, and, and pushed by the uh, by politicians otherwise the ulama they, they never uh, they never sanctioned these things because they're clearly haram in our sharia you cannot force a person to convert to Islam uh, and so that's really easy to make rad of when someone makes a polemic what are the eastern Christian um, objections about Islam you guys are sexual perverts why? because in, in heaven you know you have sex over there I'm like yeah what is it well, you want to like read the bible and play harp what kind of jannah is that nobody wants to go to jannah like, you guys don't even want to do that in this world like how are you going to want to go to jannah like that your own popes your own priests your own pastors are you know uh, uh, getting caught doing this that and the other thing it's a halal it's a nice thing It's a, if it was so bad why would your mother have done it I tell people, I, like the thing is, you have to when you're talking to people, you have to get to the point. Not everyone's going to be like you guys come to Maliki Fikdars and listen to me yak for like ten minutes, right? So if it was that bad, why would your mother have done it? Not only she did it, she enjoyed it. 
Are you insulted by that? Why would you be insulted by that? It's nice, it's beautiful. You like it too. If you didn't like it, this wouldn't fascinate you. It's not a qabih thing to do, right? Like sodomy is qabih, it's, it's an ugly act. It's a dirty act, it smells bad, it looks bad, it's a horrible act. There's nothing wrong with it, a husband and wife love each other, mashallah, family. That's how, that's how like all of it works, right? If you want to be pro-life or whatever, right? The rational muqaddimah of that is that you have to, you know, if life is a good thing, then what causes it has to be a good thing as well, right? So, anywho, like, whatever, it's nice, mashallah, it's, 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 it's a nice thing. It's, the, the, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's easy to make rad on this. Like any person on the street, any person atheist on the street, if you tell them like, okay, who makes more sense to you, Islam or Christianity? And they're going to tell you like original sin and sex is bad and you should just be a drunkard instead. And say, no, keep your aqla intact. Go marry someone you love and enjoy yourself. Nobody's going to like think that one is, you know, that, that, that there's ambiguity of, over which is superior or, or over the other. I remember I had in university, I had a, a Catholic uh, classmate Nice guy, mashallah, we got along. He would come, we'd invite him to uh, um, our iftars in Ramadan. He ate biryani one time and he bit into a stick of cinnamon. He goes, dude, why is there wood in my rice? I said, he's a nice guy, we, you know, we, you know we have, I have good things to say about him. And then there was another, uh, there was another roommate of ours who was like kind of a, a devout atheist. And so I remember the Catholic one time, he's like, he goes, your religion is lame, man. You guys don't, you can't even drink. I'm like, yeah, I guess, you know. I go, your religion is lame. Your priests, uh, they, they never get married. They live a life in celibacy. And so he was now hemmed into, the, into a corner. And says, well, I'd rather drink than, like, do it. And the atheist's like, nah, dude, I'd rather do it. <laughs> so this is the Eastern, this is the Eastern Rad on Islam. The Western church is like, are you kidding me? This is going to be a complete catastrophe. We have to take a completely different tack. What's their different tack? Just lie about Islam. So, you know, for centuries, the, the papacy used to promote the idea that the Saracens worship a, a, an idol of a man who dresses up like a woman named Termagent. Does this have any rooting in any sort of reality? No. But... Ironic, in fact, that the people whose churches are filled with icons would accuse us of idolatry, right? But it's a smart move because if they actually made rudd on like the actual beliefs and precepts of Islam, do you know what a catastrophe that would have been? Because this makes sense. That doesn't make any sense. You know, it just it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And so, anyhow, there's a need to ikhtilat, to make ikhtilat, to go talk to people. You know, they may not accept it today, tomorrow, or really ever, but they'll know inside of their hearts it's the truth when they see us praying five times a day and, and you know, not getting drunk and not committing zina and not doing all of these things, which uh, sadly, uh, many of our people are not really good at, at, at upholding that hujjah, and that's a double fire on them. Uh, not only the fire on them for their own sins, but for the people that they also have uh, dropped the ball with in terms of representing the deen. It is haram, it is haram, it is haram for people to live in Dar al-Kufr. If it's a fitna for you, if you want to be a drunkard and you want to be a womanizer, just move back to Dar al-Islam, don't live here. It's not good. It's not good for you, it's not good for them. Look, what's worse than being a zani and being a drunkard? Is being a zani, a drunkard, and a kafir. That's where it's going to end up here, over there. I've met drunkards in the Muslim world. I've met Zainis in the Muslim world, or at least people who, you know, don't seem to project the projection of keeping their clothes clean. And uh, uh, 
not not a single one of them would you know tolerate someone cursing the Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam why because they have iman inside their heart whereas here you can have people pray five times a day and they're like well you know that's like you know it's their right to say it and this and that right um and so put that issue aside but we have our muslim societies our traders used to go to different places and mix with people Andalus, there were so many Nasara that lived with the Muslims that would come and go, get an education, and locals, right? Egypt, all of these different places, right? They know who we are, they know who we are, they know our, our shortcomings, they know our strengths and weaknesses, and uh, it affects them, actually. If you listen to a bayan that a Qisis or a Rahbani will give on, on uh, you know, in Arabic about whatever, go listen to the Arab Christian like evangelical channels. It sounds very different than the way they talk over here. And it sounds very much like, you know, except for certain formulaic differences, it sounds very much like the way Muslims talk. The Shanuda, the previous Coptic Pope, right, you know, they used to hate on him because he told people not to eat pork. He once asked, someone asked, how'd your Arabic get so good? He goes, you have to study the Quran. And they're like, huh? He said, well, as a piece of literature, I don't believe in it, but it's, you know, it's really beautiful. And obviously that's going to affect people, right? And then they know it's the haq. A person who studied the Quran, Yom Al-Qiyamah, they can't say I didn't know, right? And so, ikhtilat uh, in a true sense will require what? It will require that you eat together and that you live together. Therefore, the, the, the rukhsah. Now, coming back to the state of Illinois or whatever. Uh, someone says, well, why is it then, you know, you guys try to shove this, push this halal stuff down people's throat all the time? Isn't this an issue that is really just a difference of opinion and we should let it go? Fiqh is, you know, something that's based on methodology and it's something based on objective facts. If I knew, if I knew that the food was being slaughtered by a Christian or a Jew, then I would say, go, go right ahead and eat it. Go right ahead and eat it. Now our Desi Hanafi Mulana Hazrat will say, oh, back up, Hamza. You know, they say that to me. They say, they call, you know, all the, all the, everybody else, all the, the cool, quote unquote, cool Malikis, you know, the bow tie, I want to have a dog Maliki public. They say, ah, this guy, he's not really Maliki. He's Desi, he's just an undercover Hanafi. I know, people say it. And you know what the Mulana say to me? They say, oh, this is Sheikh Hamza. As if to say, oh, he's not a Mawli. He's not a real Mawli. How could he be a Mawli? He's a Hanafi. He's not a Hanafi. He's a Maliki. Right? So that's fine. I don't care. One way or the other, I don't care. So that's fine. They're not going to agree with this. Right? But I'll say, well, it's the Haq. The Haq is the Haq. I'm not there to antagonize people. The Haq is the Haq. So if the farmer at the Amish uh, place that you get your uh, meat from or whatever slaughters or like Farmer Jim from down the road slaughters. It's halal as jai's go ahead and eat it. If it's an actual kosher place, because kosher is a whole scam just like halal is a scam in this country. Um, but if it's actually kosher slaughtered, even if the rabbi doesn't say the tasmiya on the, uh, or the shachit doesn't say the tasmiya on the animal that he's slaughtering, the the madar is what that they should they should slaughter according to their standard, not according to ours. And in fact, you don't even have to go that far to invoke this opinion. Why? Because if a shafi'i is slaughtered and he doesn't say the tasmiyah, the Malikis would say we would give fatwa that that it's not jayz. But if a shafi'i is slaughtered and his atiqad is that it's jayz, then the khilaf means that you can eat it. So if we're not going to make ilzam of a shafi'i to our sharia to that degree, then how are we going to make ilzam of a rabbi to that degree? 
the problem in this country is everybody here a Christian? No. Someone's like, well, you know, mashallah, uh, I don't even want to mention like some of the dumb things people say, but like, you know, some say, oh, you got pushed this thing and it's really a difference of opinion. I go, it's not a difference of opinion. I go, do you think you, you have yaqeen that uh, the person who's slaughtering your meat is a Christian or a Jew? Well, it's ghalab the dhan. I said, what percentage of, of Americans are Christian by any shari definition? 60% is a very, very, very generous estimate. In the Shafi'i school, almost nobody in America is really Christian. According to the Shafi'i school, the only person who is legally valid Christian or a Jew in, uh, in the Shafi'i school is somebody who, whose forefathers accepted Christianity before the Rasul wasallam. They're grandfathered into the system. And the only valid Jew is somebody whose forefathers were Jews before Sayyidina Isa Islam. They're grandfathered into the system. So if somebody's family converted to Judaism, which is really, to be honest with you, there's a, there's a, there, you know, there are people who make the argument that most of Eastern European Jews are like the descendants of Khazars and things like that. They're not even according to that standard, Shafi standard, they're not even, many Ashkenazi Jews may not even be actually Jews in that sense. Wallahu alam. I don't know like the actual reality of that or not, you know, but uh, so push that aside, the Shafi'i opinion to the side. Even in the Hanafi, even in the Maliki uh, madhabs that are not that stringent. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. Reformed Jews are not Jews. Mormons are not Christians. If you keep tallying, 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 you know, uh, you know who's a, who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, 60% it just doesn't cut it. That means every two days you're eating something haram, like it doesn't work. Statistically, like play the number, play the numbers. But the van is like what? Like how do you know the Muslim guy who, who slaughtered your, your animal is not really like a Qadiani or something like that? It's, you catch those things, if it happened, it happened. But like that's a very rare a very rare thing. Once people catch it, they fed it, they ferret it out, and it's done. It's known, right? Whereas, you know, what is even Christianity in this country? The Lord knows best, mashallah. You know, like the Christianity nowadays just seems to be like you're a Trump voter. That's not. That's not any Shari uh, standard for who's a Christian, who's not. And the issue is this: is when there's shock, when there's doubt, uh, then things return to their asl. You know, so you have this idea in your mind, maybe I farted. Well, did you? I don't know, maybe. Well, did you hear anything? Did you smell anything? Did you feel anything? Did you this? Did you that? If the answer is no to all of them, then you probably didn't, right? It's not that there's some sort of like ultra secret, ultra smooth fart that is a fart but doesn't have any sifat of a fart in the real world that doesn't break your wudu. No, the point is, is what? is that when you have a doubt about something, you ask certain questions to ascertain that yes, this happened, no, it didn't. If you know it happened, then it happened. There's no need to even ask these questions, right? So if you have a doubt about something, you assume that the thing that is that you know to have taken place to take in place and the thing that you doubt take, took place until you have proof you, you, know, you don't know it took place. So for example, if someone were to say, I went to the supermarket and you know, there's carrots sitting there and I don't know if the carrots are soaked in pig's blood. Is there any qarina that indicates to you that that happened? 
If the answer is yes, look, there's like a carcass of seven pigs on this pile of carrots and it's bleeding. Okay, then don't eat the carrots. If there's no karina and it's just something in your head that, that you have no, no, no dalil for and no, nothing that corroborates that possibility even, then you dismiss it. Legally, you dismiss it. So even if it turns out that there's some super secret operation to soak it in pig's blood and then wash it off or whatever afterward, you know, then you legally you're not at least you're not liable for that. So legally, the default position for many things is that they're tahir. What's the legal? What's the default position for meat? It's not just. But sheikh, people of the book. Okay, khalas, if you know it's been slaughtered by people of the book, go ahead and eat it. Did I say no? You can't eat it. I was in New York, mashallah, I took a Mulana Saab, I won't take his name so that the other movies don't execute him. Uh, 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 you know, I took him to uh, in New York City to like, you know, one of the like legit kosher places. You know, we had conducted an interview with the Yahudi behind the, the counter and we saw like the rabbis with the, with the curls, you know, the forelocks, the pace, like, you know, and the dopey and suit and all that stuff. And we're like, okay, Jalotike, you know, like, Let's see, do you have, you know, like have a corned beef sandwich or whatever? Or like there are places in Skokie and things like that, halal, di halal diners, the kosher diners that are like that. So I take, 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 take a rebel movie over there and go eat with them, you know? It's fine. Go ahead. Go for it. I'll eat with you. But if you think that's what they're serving at like McDonald's or at Julasco or at some random place, you're, you're, uh, you can't say that the so-and-so sheikh gave fatwa. The... Mufti is like the prisoner of the Mustafti, the person who's asking the question. The Mufti can only answer the question that was asked. If, if the assumption in the question is that everybody in America is a Christian, then that's the situation he's giving fatwa for, not what's actually happening. So, uh, you know, that's what that is. You like it, you don't like it. it. It is what it is. It's not really a difference of opinion. It's not, there's nobody can, until somebody can prove to me that, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, I can go more than four days without statistically eating something haram, then I'm not, it's not really a very cogent argument. If you want it to be true, that's fine. You can want something to be true so much that it becomes a reality for you. That's like a, like a, a discussion to have with a psychiatrist. But like in the objective realm, that's, that's, that's how that is. And then he mentions this mas'ala that eating the fat of the slaughter of a Jew is makruh. Why? It's because they, that's, those are the parts that they throw away. So fidatihi, it's technically not haram, but it's makruh. Why? Because you're humiliating yourself by eating the thing that they wouldn't eat themselves. In that sense, the, for ruminants, you know, for like goats, sheep, cattle, etc., they only eat the front half of the animal. The back half they don't eat. So many unscrupulous people will sell it as halal. Look, it may not be haram to eat, but to market it as if it's slaughtered by a Muslim or to maintain ambiguity, this is itself a sin. It's haram. You know, in the buyur, anything that you know that if the person, or you have a feeling that if a person knew about it, they would think that this is some sort of abe or defect or even suboptimality with regards to the product that you're selling, you are shara'an obliged to inform the person about it. And so to eat the part of the animal that's rejected by Yahudi is 
Chilaf, it's against and contrary to the honor of being a believer. That's why it's makru. Otherwise, the thing fizati is, is jayas to eat. So he says, he says, وَكُرِهَا أَكْلُوا شُحُمِي لِجَهُودِ مِنْهُمْ مِنْ غَيْرِ تَحْرِيمِ وَلَا يُؤْكَلُوا مَا ذَكَّاهُ الْمَجُوسِيُّ The thing that was slaughtered by a Zoroastrian fire worshipper is not permissible to eat. And so the Persians, they have this kind of legal status that, that the, that's kind of like Ahlul Kitab-like. You can't eat their meat and you can't marry their people. But they did receive dhimma, that they were allowed to pay jizya and, uh, and uh, um, live in the society. They weren't, con- they weren't treated like the idol worshippers of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and, I, you know, Moana, you can tell me about this. It's essentially the same treatment that's in the fatwa books meted out for the, the, uh, for in the Hanafis for the Hindus and things like that also, right? From what I see. Yeah, that, that was, you know... That that was what the what the what the fatwa is uh, for that that they lived under dhimma uh, uh, in the Muslim state they were not forced to you know they were not forced to convert or whatever um, but they lived they lived with they lived under dhimma no matter what like weird like fantastical BJP reports about like uh, slaughtering like more Hindus than actually existed at that time type of stories that they tell that whip their people up into like an emotional frenzy but no actually. Um, the most loyal soldiers of the Mughal Empire were all Hindu Rajputs, and they would offer to convert, and the the the, the Padishah would decline the offer again and again. The Muslim soldiers would sell out, but the Hindu Rajputs would stay loyal loyal to the throne, and they had very high positions in the. Um, in the government, they were oftentimes the ministers and things like that. Even when something like, for example, they, you know, it would happen. The Mughals would like sack a temple or whatever. It would be for political reasons. Why is the, why would you say that? Is because the Hindus are the ones actually doing the, the soldiers doing the sacking and things like that. They're the prime ministers making the decisions. The Mughal India, like, is very, it's really fascinating. Talk to Mughal Saleh about it, right? Um, such a such a minuscule minority. How it reigned over such a huge country. It was not possible without, without collaboration from the locals. And that collaboration was very deep. That's why even the most acrid Hindu nationalist who hates Muslims by day and night cannot say five sentences without using like 10 words of Persian and Arabic in it. You know, you can say pustak instead of kitab, but how, what, what, what are you going to use to substitute for lakin? For lakin, how are you going to substitute for that? It's just become part of the air that they that they breathe. I remember listening to some uh, crazy, like rabid, like idol worshiper who's like ranting about genocide. You know, so Gita ki kasam inke gale kaatenge. La uksimu bil Gita. Come on, man. Right? Even the word kasam, he can, you know, it's they can't they can't do anything about it. They themselves are unaware about 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 you know how in, deeply ingrained it is in the in the culture. That was. <laughs> Uh, decision consciously that their forefathers accepted because what it wasn't so bad maybe okay you're a hindu you want hindus to rule like i understand that but it wasn't that bad anyhow so the the slaughter of majusi is not is not valid even though they have vimma uh, but anything that they eat that doesn't that doesn't require like an animal to be slaughtered that's that's not haram 
And so this is a, a great proof in the haqq of the ahnaf. And this is possibly why Ibn Taymiyyah actually sides with them against the atharis in terms of the cheese. Because cheese has uh, rennet, right? Which is a microbial plaque that grows on the inside of the digestive tract of animals that is it kind of polymerizes the reaction of curdling milk into cheese. Is that the Sahaba who would eat the cheese that the Persians made? And there's no recorded uh, objection to this practice, right? Um, and it's understood that whatever is not slaughtered from amongst their food is uh, is halal. Now, both Malik and Abu Hanifa they actually said that the infihad, the the rennet, is not actually part of the animal. How did they know that? You know, maybe that's what something Allah Ta'ala gave to Imam Abu Hanifa like every night when he was finishing the Qur'an like somehow Allah Ta'ala showed him something that normal people don't see we talked about in the beginning of the dars, right? Being pious is not just a waste of time There's at some point or another when people say this person has nur in their heart like it means something it's not just something like the Bli'is say, right? Uh, um, you know, maybe Malik Rahimullah Ta'ala when he would see the Prophet in a vision every night when he slept Maybe something or another he learned in that. Allahu alam. Like I don't know how they knew that, but it is what it is. Uh, at any rate, the the point is is that that the unsoldered part of the food you can go have like go have your masala dosa with you know uh, you know your Hindu friends. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. For what? Does it? Does it have that classification of makruh tanzihi? Makruh when it's mentioned in the books of the Malikiya, it means makruh Makruta tahrimi is just haram because there's no distinction. The distinction, like amali, in an amali sense, in a practical sense, what the Hanafis consider wajib and farad are practically exactly the same. If you do it, you receive reward. If you don't do it, it's a sin, right? And the same thing with the with the makruh tahrimi and haram. If you do it, it's a sin, and if you abstain from it, it's a reward. The difference is that is the i'tiqadi issue, right? That the fard, if you make inkar of it, you're a kafir. Whereas, you know, if you deny that the fard is the fard, you're a kafir. Whereas, if you deny the wajib is a fard, it's a difference of opinion. We just say you're wrong. And the same thing on the, you know, so the, the Malikis don't, to my understanding, nobody retains that distinction. Actually, the distinction between fard and wajib, this particular author, Ibn Abi Zaid, he makes in his in his book, but to my knowledge, he's the only Maliki that actually uses that mustalah. And on the flip side, he doesn't use makruh to mean anything except for makruh tanzihi. Yeah. So what is what is makruh uh, tanzihi? Uh, um, makruh. When we say makruh, it means um, something that if you do it, it's not a sin, but if you abstain from it, there's a reward. It's the analog. If we say this thing is a sunnah or it's recommended, meaning if you don't do it, it's not a sin. Like if you don't pray fajr, it's a sin. If you pray Fajr, it's reward. If you don't pray the Sunnahs before Fajr, it's not a sin. But if you do pray them, there's a reward. On the flip side, the things that are makruh, that the Sharia prefers that a person not do, if you abstain from it, it's a reward. But if you do it, it's not a sin. Whereas makruh tahrimi in the Hanafi usul, it's a sin if you do it. It's haram. I mean, it's, it's haram. Functionally, it's haram. It's just the aqidah issue is murakab on, on top of it. I wish there was a different word. Just like wajib and fard, so that there would be no uh, ambiguity about it. But who's going to go back to uh, Kufa, uh, you know, so many centuries ago and talk about that? And there's probably they probably had the discussion and decided not to for some good reason. Um, okay, so that's that's 
that's that. He says that uh, he says that, that their other food, food that doesn't require any slaughter is not haram. Uh, to hunt for the purposes of sport or entertainment uh, uh, is uh, uh, this is if you eat the if you eat the catch if you waste the catch, then it's haram. You understand what I'm saying? Let's go hunting. We'll eat it, but it's just for entertainment. There's no need. There's no need for it, and it's not like you know. It's just for entertainment because it's, it's fun. Um, whereas uh, uh, hunting for, for uh, that's not for the purposes of entertainment, but it's actually to catch something to eat or something like that. There are other reasons that are not lahu, right? There are other reasons that are not just entertainment. Um, hunting oftentimes is a, a way for soldiers to uh, hone certain skills that they need for war. Stalking prey. Marksmanship. These types of things. These are sharia countenanced uh, skills that need to be kept by certain people. That's permissible. Now, obviously, not every not every animal is edible. To kill something that there's no Sharia sanction use for at all, um, and there's no benefit in killing them. Like for example, wild boars, you're not going to eat them. You're not going to really use the hide or anything for anything. But they do overrun and destroy like crops and things like that. So there's some Sharia sanctioned benefit. Just to kill for the sake of killing and no utility, that itself is haram. But there are ways of hunting for entertainment for the purpose of entertainment that you can like you eat whatever you catch or there's some other uh, there's some other uh, thing that you can claim as a uh, you know some sort of benefit of it. That's uh, there's a, a separation between those things. And so to to hunt for for reasons other than other than lahu is 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 permissible because hunting is difficult right like you have your salat and you're stalking prey you have to stalk prey sometimes for like days on end and you miss your salat and things like that uh, you have to stalk the prey from downwind and when you shoot it then you have to keep stalking it as well because it'll run for some time you have to catch up with it it's still dangerous it has to bleed a little bit before you can get anywhere close to it and things like that so the problem with the lahu is what is you miss your prayers and it kind of it becomes a a, a, a enough of a distraction that it's not, why would you do that if you didn't need to? Or if there wasn't some, other than eating, like, you know, there are other reasons to do it, but why would you do it if there's no reason? Um, yes, question. Someone that raised their hand, yeah. So there's no situation whereby you go hunting, you know, like, for example, like, uh, if you can act, if you can purchase the halal meat, for example, mm -hmm. like you still go hunting because I guess. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if it's not for entertainment, if it's for the purpose of like spending time with nature and learning something about what's around you and ke keeping the skills that are necessary for war or for self-defense or whatever, there should be a reason other than entertainment. Killing stuff for sport, people who do that are jerks. And uh, Alhamdulillah, this is actually a good thing about modern sensibility is we don't appreciate that. It's good. We shouldn't appreciate that. There's something inhuman about killing things for no reason.
question. Okay. You mentioned um, like shooting the animal. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Like I know like there's a specific way of slaughter. Mm -hmm. So is it permissible to shoot the animal? So the issue of bullets, let's put it to the side for a second. Okay. Uh, one of the things I think we mentioned in last week's Dars is that um, whenever you release uh, the implement of hunting, be it an arrow, a spear, throw a spear, or if it's a hunting animal, you let the release the animal or whatever. Yeah. You say Bismillah at that time, and then whatever, whatever you know, you know, with the intention that whatever you, you're shooting it at, or possibly shooting it at, or throwing it at, or releasing it on, that uh, that whatever it catches is then halal, then it's halal. Okay. And like we mentioned, that if you can catch up to the animal, because wild animals will not go down without a fight. If you can catch up to an animal safely, slaughter it before it's completely dead, you're actually obliged to do so. It's going to mention it um, in a little bit. We're not going to get to that part of the dars today because okay. our hour is almost up. But, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's what that is. Now, the issue with the gun is what? The bullet itself is not sharp, is it? It can't cut. It rips. Yeah. And so for this reason, many of the modern jurists have said that it's improper to make an analogy between it and between like an arrow why because an arrowhead is sharp it cuts uh, however uh, I think it's still you know Allahu alam. like if you're using like hollow point you know the slug like makes a huge hole like exit wound or whatever that's different than something that has a tip that actually you know uh, pierces and it, you know I, I don't know I think there's there's a, a discussion that can be made or, and there's a difference between using a bullet that has a tip and using like shot like shotguns mm -hmm. buckshot and things like that there's actually apparently Moana Junaid Kharsani I don't know if you ever remember you never got to me we had programs in Seattle you were probably still mashallah you were still in the crib and Mahdi Sabiyan when, when he came he mentioned that there was there was uh, someone in South Africa a Muslim hunter who actually uh, patented a, uh, a patent for, for shot buckshot and things like that in a shotgun that the sphere actually had like uh, like two rings uh, two orthogonal rings around them that were actually sharpened so that it cuts in instead of ripping in um Technologies that weren't de developed by Muslims and not fostered by Muslims, but the point is, is what is a type of it's a type of cruelty to rip the meat of the animal. I don't know in that sense if one can say that. Uh, it's a discussion to be had. It's probably beyond my pay grade to give my opinion about it. I'm just mentioning that this is, this is a difference and it's an ideological difference. So go bow hunting and buy your meat from a, from the halal butcher. Inshallah, that's my advice. Inshallah, we'll continue next week. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.